Hello and welcome to the EMS Improv Podcast, where we engage, where we are mindful, and we share or tell our stories. We are powered by GEMS. Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be our first podcast of 2023, and I'm very excited to introduce the guest, our guest, and today's topic. We'll get into that in just a second. Our guests uh, both have made amazing impact for other people, but yet more, yet more importantly, they have found uh, through their journey uh, things that needed to be closed within, within their uh, past. And we'll be more specific about that in a minute. Our first guest is Dr. Rita Nakashima-Brock. She's a leading national expert on moral injury and is the senior vice president and director of the Shea Moral Injury Center at Volunteers of America, which is a large social services nonprofit working in 45 states currently. In the summer of 2020, the Shea Center developed an online program called Resilience Strength Time, or REST for short, that helps experiencing uh, those people experiencing moral distress or moral injury get a chance to support uh, in small groups. A few months ago, the center also created a separate REST program for first responders called REST for First Responders that offers first responders an hour in small groups to process moral distress and moral injury. Dr. Brock is a Protestant chaplain and was a professor of religion and philosophy for two decades. Since 2010, she has been working on moral injury, which we will dive into more in just a few moments. In 2022, she co-authored the book, Soul Repair, Recovering from More Moral Injury After War. And I would recommend it for first responders, physicians, those that, care, uh, that are caregivers for other people. And we're gonna delve into that even further. Um, we are also joined by Vietnam War veteran James Wong, uh, who is currently serves as a rest facilitator. His relationship with VOA began in 2018 when he participated in a program for veterans called Resilient Strength Training, or RST. James discovered the program many years after his military service, and he became a excuse me, a facilitator in the RST program, where he found a new meaning and purpose in helping other veterans on their journey. When the Shea Center started the REST program, James was among the first facilitators to help us create it based upon successful strategies that were used in the RST Veterans Program. James has been working in REST program ever since, and especially as a trainer of new facilitators. Most importantly, uh, when we were speaking last week, James let me know that he is a human being on a journey, or in other words, he also said a way shower. So ladies and gentlemen, I wanna welcome both of our guests. Um, and I want to thank Stephen Cohen of the Medic to Medic Mindcast uh, podcast, Laura Evans of Laura Evans Media, and Serena Marshall for facilitating this this opportunity that we can get uh, Dr. Brock and uh, James Wong on here to to share their stories, talk about moral injury, and without further ado, Dr. Brock, James, thank you very very much for your time. Uh, it is very very important conversation. I'm so appreciative of what you're going to share, and I'm just uh, excited. Thank you. So we had talked last week, and our hearts kind of came together, and you allowed me the grace to share something at the very beginning of our conversation, which I think allowed me to realize the impact of what you do and what these programs do and the study that you've been doing and James, the facilitating that you do with, with people to get them to a place where their, their soul is, is your book can be repaired. That psyche, that consciousness to become more whole where we start to diminish the guilt, the anguish, the shame, the outrage and the sorrow that we feel when we bear witness to or experience things or that were either done to us or that we have done to others. And so that, what an important message. Um, Dr. Brock, you have the ability to make the clarification. I was so you know keen on this as PTSD or post-traumatic stress or depression or anxiety. And you told us something very, very interesting that moral injury or moral distress is not a diagnosis and it's not really a mental illness. So would you like to elaborate on that and kind of describe that for our listeners? Sure, I'd love to do that. Um, you know, every human being is born needing love to survive. 
And it's not that we just need it as babies. We need it our whole lives long to sustain relationships of love and care. That's what makes us feel whole and good in life. And, you know, the Harvard study on life success and the people who are happiest are the ones who have good relationships, not the ones who make the most money or have the best jobs. And so that's that's just part of being a human being is, is needing to be good because that's how we maintain love in our lives. So when we do something that is not right, that we that our own conscience, we, we start to feel like it's not right, or somebody did something to us that wasn't right. We have what, what you might call a moral conflict. We have an issue. Something's wrong. And so most of us have ways we deal with that. We learn growing up that we should apologize when we've been wronged. And if somebody's hurt us, we need to engage with that and try to resolve the problems. And, uh, and when we do, then we, we keep going. We, we, it, the moral stability of our world is maintained by our ability to handle moral conflicts. But sometimes you get into a moral conflict where you can't fix it exactly, or it's not clear how to fix it. Uh, it may be that there's two wrong choices and one is less wrong than the other, or you're, you're, it's like you, you know if you do something, it's going to be harmful, but if you don't do something, it's going to be even worse. And those are moral dilemmas. They're moral, they're, they're the kind of things that we may lose sleep over, we may start to worry about, we may, it may take us a long time to figure it out and come to terms with it. So while we're in that dilemma, that's moral distress. We're, we're not feeling quite ourselves. We're feeling stress about some moral issue we can't resolve. And most people have these. It's, it's a common, you know, it's a really a daily experience for some people that you're sometimes faced with something you're not sure what to do and you have to figure it out and you might make a mistake or, you know, you didn't act and then terrible things happen. So if you have a lot of these, if, if moral distress starts to accumulate, you're carrying an awful lot of these stressors, like a lot of people during the pandemic wound up doing, or if you have something cataclysmic, like just so huge and awful that you can't make sense of it, then you might break. And by break, I mean, you may start to wonder who you are, or decide you're not a good person, or just want to walk away from it because you can't deal with it. Like quit a career you loved, or you may cope with the pain of that moral conflict, the, the sense of shame or guilt or outrage. Sometimes it's just outrage. How could this happen? Um, so you may cope with those feelings by stuffing them, trying not to feel them so you can keep moving because they can be really devastating feelings. Or you might use drugs or alcohol to try to numb them down so you can function. Um, or you may just walk away and think that avoiding them by walking away from the situation will fix it, which it won't, but, but that we often try to do that. Or you may even reach a point of feeling like you don't either deserve to live or that you're disgusting and don't want to live. So moral injury is a really serious case of a lot of moral distress. And, um, and it's an identity crisis. It's a, it's a meaning crisis. You may give up on everything you thought you believed in because nothing worked to fix you or the situation. And when you're in a state of moral injury, you're not emotionally available to people because you're dominated by those moral negative feelings. So you may try to not feel anything or you may be a lot angry all the time or sad. I mean, there's lots of feelings that come from moral injury and they can dominate your life. Um, and so if you can't process the feelings and that's, that's where the pain is, it's the heart that's hurting because your conscience made a moral judgment and now your heart is hurting a lot. Um, and so uh, until you can get those feelings in your heart expressed uh, fully and be and people believe you and and say yes those are valid feelings and they are terrible um, you can't process them and some people write some people use art some people have other forms of expression but most people need to talk about it 
And so that's how we design the programs we have is they're not full-blown moral injury processing programs as, as such. They're really focused on moral distress, but that can help prevent people descending or it, somebody can actually come with a moral injury and really receive some help for it. So it's not, it, it, as I described, it's not a mental health condition. It's a normal reaction to something that's horrible, but it's awful. It's an awful, also an awful kind of suffering. And, and, um, and we don't have to suffer like that if we can find a way to process because the events happen. You can't get rid of them that you can't ever forget the worst thing that ever happened to you. Um, and it can run your life until you figure out a way to process it. So it be, can, can be, how would I put it integrated into your life as a source of information and wisdom that, also enables you to fear, feel curiosity and wonder and joy again. That, I know that you know this to your core and, and I know you live those shared experiences. So as you're expressing this, this is something you walked through in your, in your personal life to which you now have the acumen and the desire and, and the study to, to share these, uh, these ideas with people so that they can feel more uh, connected and engaged. Um, and that's the biggest thing that, you know, EMS Improv, it's engaged, it's mindful, it's sharing and telling stories to wit, we, uh, we have the opportunity to hear uh, what you're presenting and what VOA can do. Um, the participants and James, that's where I want to come to you here for a second, before we go back to, to Dr. Brock, you are a, a Vietnam combat veteran. And we made the assimilation to law enforcement and EMS. And the reason that we even got uh, even considered the topic uh, or, or coming on the podcast was, uh, you know, Serena had written to me uh, and Stephen Cohen about the 44 to 50 mass shootings in January of 2023 alone. And first responders and EMS providers uh, in particular is how they kind of uh, brought it to us that were bearing witness to and responding to these mass shootings and having to make choices on who they treat and who they don't treat first and second and kind of putting uh, people in a position of life or potentially death. Um, you being a combat veteran uh, in Vietnam, you also had a lot of decisions to make. And when you're following orders, you also have then this position for which you're you have your moral compass, and then you also have leadership roles and structure where you're accountable. Um, so I understand it myself. So I'd like to hear from you how that affected you, what you're willing to share on that process, and how it brought you into uh, service and seeking the help with the RSD program to then just say, my soul, my spirit is now on this journey. I can seek joy again, as Dr. Brock talked about. Uh, they can act in concert with sadness um, and, and anger and frustration, but you now have an integration into your life on this path, if you will, that the universe gives, the universe also receives. Uh, you know, as we talked about, we, we did a meditation just before we started to kind of cleanse our spirits and bring our souls and our spirits to a place of peace and calm and tranquility to get into this tough subject. So... With that, I would like to, to give the opportunity to you to share what brought you to this process and what instills in you the passion to share this journey and to be a way sharer for people. Well, gosh, where do I begin? I, you know, we all want to like ourselves. It's like Dr. Dr. Rita said, uh, you know, we all want to think we're a good person. Uh, when we're in the kinds of situations that I was in during that that time of our history, where you know, the, if you recall, the country was very, very, very divided, kind of like we are now. There were those that were pro-war. There, there were those that uh, uh, that thought we were fighting communism. That we had this 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 fear of the spread of the red across the global map that was growing and growing and growing. You know, I grew up in Florida where 
uh, I was in high school during the Cuban Missile Crisis. 90 miles away were nuclear missiles. Some of my uh, schoolmates dropped out of school to, to go fight because we thought that was wrong and we felt threatened. And and so there was that going on. And then there's the... Um, there were those that there were anti-war you know it was it was also the 60s it was uh, make love not war mm-hmm. <laughs> peace peace you know all of that stuff so um the 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 i think that one of the most important points is when we're faced with the moral dilemma should i or shouldn't i what's right or what's wrong you know, those that burn their draft cards, um, you know, there was a lot of judgment. Well, the, you know, that wasn't the right thing to do. They're unpatriotic. They're betraying uh, their pledge of that, that, that. Uh, maybe they were being true to themselves. Maybe they were being true to their hearts. And so uh, I think all of us uh, at that time were divided. And it's the, we're divided because we have a conscience. So that that by itself makes us morally good people. So, you know, what do you do when your leader, your young lieutenant that just got out of college that may have been protesting the war too, says, go into that village, burn it down and kill everybody in it. What do you do? What do you do? So uh, my path was one of, uh, Dr. Vita talked about drugs and alcohol. My addiction was excitement. You know, in the military, we're not allowed to have uh, any emotions other than than uh, anger, uh, really. The, you know, the, certainly there's no joy. And, and uh Underneath that anger is fear. But of course, you're not allowed to talk about that because we're all brave soldiers, right? So the, the fear uh, isn't um, owned. Uh, the, the question of am I doing the right thing is a kind of a fear all by itself. You know, like what you talked about um, medical technicians, EMTs out in the field, police officers out in the field. What's the right thing? You know, it. it do I do I shoot to kill? Uh, so, um, is my life threatened? Is public safety is this person a threat to public safety? And a fraction of a second, you know, we, we make those decisions. Uh, who's you know the the case that you presented? Um, do I save this person or that person, or just the things that we see that we can't unsee that stay with us and so my path was one of of i was addicted to excitement you know we we all have this <laughs> drug store inside of our bodies that we can generate uh, painkillers uh we can you know in order to feel alive you know after uh feeling like i was sitting on a ticking time bomb for so long is when i didn't have that edge i felt uh dull uh, numbed, empty, hollow. And so uh, while I, I did well for uh, decades, uh, because I just was able to compartmentalize it and put it all behind me and, and not talk about it, I didn't tell anybody anything for, for, for decades. And, and then uh, when I retired, it all came forward. All of that that I'd been hiding with uh, adrenaline and and when when um when i wasn't amped up when i wasn't uh hey what's new and exciting with you you know living vicariously through somebody else's excitement because there's nothing going on exciting in my life there was this um you know the anger would catch up with me and it you know they talk about anger um it it would turn to depression you know, the anger turned inward oftentimes is defined as as de- a source of depression. And so, of course, nobody likes to feel that. But so it's not that something was, I thought something was wrong with me, but I didn't want to admit it. You know, in, in 12-step programs, we talk about denial. You can't fix a problem if you're in denial. 
and so that's part of what we do is, is we create this safe place where we can come together and share what's really going on inside of us. You know, we, a person can step outside of the culture that they live in and work in where everybody's macho and tough and fearless. And, and, and we put that label of hero on and put our capes on and go about doing our duty, quote, duty. Um, and we can just be human beings. And because that's the part of us that we lose touch with. It's like we forget that we're human beings with emotions and feelings. And of course, we're troubled. And, and to pretend otherwise is denying a part of ourselves and we become fragmented. And so in these meetings, we create a safe place where people understand people have been in the same place, uh, same kinds of situations, those moral dilemmas. And uh, in that safety and in that place of understanding, people can just be themselves and talk about whatever's going on in their heart and, and get it and process it. You know, and I, I, I know we also process more injury to some extent. Um, but I think the way I look at it is we're trying to help people with moral distress process it before it becomes moral injury. Hopefully that's that's one of our big goals, uh, one of our ambitions. It We don't have to spend a lifetime suffering and hurting because we feel like we've made a wrong decision and somebody's death is on our hands. So we have, you know, that feeling of having blood on your hands that you 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 can. You know, it it just haunts us. And so we don't need to be haunted by our humanity. James, that, that brings up a couple of questions. And, and Dr. Brock, I, I watched you and, and you're nodding in affirmation to, to a lot of things that James was saying. And before I get into a couple of things that I wanted to ask James uh, for clarification, um, as you were hearing and feeling what James was talking about, is there something that you wanted to kind of uh, put as an overarching point based upon your study and your and, and, and your involvement with the uh, the Shea Center and why you're so passionate and driven? And, and again, talk more about the, the moral injury versus uh, trauma and, and things like that. I'll just say one thing. Uh, which is what I was thinking as I was listening to James, um, is that pain that he describes, the depression, the anger, the avoidance, the denial, that the, the pain that's behind all of that is the good in you wanting out again. Mm. The and good in you wanting so out again. It's Sorry. Been, it's, the pain is the good in you wanting out again. And I have had the amazing privilege in my the last 10 years of my life of working on moral injury and experiencing the most amazing people who come out of these programs. They're wonderful human beings and they were just suffering. They, they come into our group. I remember in our veterans groups, people coming in, not looking at each other, looking down, you could tell they were sort of upset or depressed or maybe even angry. Um, and within a few short days, they're, they're high-fiving each other. Um, they're feeling that joy, they're connecting um, just because somebody was willing to receive their pain and see who they were under the pain and help them carry that pain until they could figure out a way to have it not drive their life. Where they where they were able to recognize it. And, and one of the things you said uh, several minutes ago was the how they can integrate it into their life. It's not going away. It didn't not happen. It's not to push away and, 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 and walk away from. It's how we can yeah. integrate it. And, and I love that. Yeah, and just, just as an aside, I, I wanna say, the, the reason moral injury isn't a disorder is that PTSD and, uh, uh, and other mental health issues have protocols that are actually helpful for relieving them. I mean, there's a lot of research and study on PTSD and on trauma. Um, and the reason you're afflicted by those things is because you're re-experiencing the horrible thing that happened and all the fear attached to it and all the horror and all of the disgust and all of those feelings that are bundled up 
in the trauma, in the PTSD. Moral injury is not that. It's not the feelings of the event. It's after you've reflected on them morally, you get these other feelings like guilt, shame, remorse, maybe even fury. Um, and those are normal reactions to horrifying events, right? So you never forget the event. You can soften the impact of the feelings of the event. But if you don't also address the moral pain it's causing you from your conscience, that's the good part of you, then even getting treated for these other things um, isn't very effective unless you can also deal with the moral conclusions you've drawn. Mm. So, so that's also important to note that um, if you do have a mental health diagnosis, having somebody that knows something about moral injury that can help you walk through that is really, really important because the event will never be forgotten. How you feel about it is what you have to negotiate. I'd like to, if we circle back to that, resources for people, because that's that's something outside of the general construct of uh, counseling at the, at the base level and PTSD or trauma-informed care counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists. So that's something that... Uh, I'm so appreciative of what you're doing at, at, at the um, Shea Center and, and James for your participation and continuing to give and give and give and, and to be the empath and receiver of stories and, and to then know how to navigate receiving that within you so that it doesn't impact you or compound that prior trauma and then where it becomes that injury portion again. Um, James, we talk about right now, Today's society in, in training and education, and it's something I do with improv specifically, where we try to create a safe psychological environment. And in the workplace and in society, um, we, we everybody has an opinion and they're fact-based and or you know keyboard warriors and they're explicitly saying things as if they're words and facts and you can't disagree with them, even if they're patently wrong. What we're trying to do now is create uh, acceptance, even if we don't agree, which allows for an environment of, of that psychological safety where that person could then be free enough to give you or share that story of pain, burden, hardship, guilt, anger, and shame. Those things that you, Dr. Brock, talked about and the things that you and I, uh, well, all three of us have experienced in our lives because, Dr. Brock, you have your story uh, of coming to the, you know, findings that you needed to find in order to come through that circle. James, you continue to live that. And, and uh, I shared with you um, the dark places that I've been in and my wife calling me out and, and needing to find my joy. And it was incongruent with the guilt and the shame and the things that I had either done or bared witness to. So creating that safe psychological environment allowing people the freedom to share or not share is that one of the tenets of the group they can sit there and be in attendance and confidentiality is obviously a, a, a tenant or a component but can they just sit there and witness uh, or do they have to physically participate or actively engage are you asking me Yes, since you are a facilitator, you do this, and you're just amazing at it. Just in the in the brief, we all, we we don't allow observers uh, per se. Uh, we do expect them to participate at some level, if it's only at just with an introduction. Wonderful. But they they uh, everyone it, just by being there is participating. Just by listening to each other's story it is participating. Um, and they're also processing as they hear, as, as we listen to each other's story, they're also processing their own thing, even if they're not ready to share it yet with others. But they will hear other people's uh, stories that... Uh, will trigger something in them or that they will resonate with or that will ha they'll have a similarity or a vibration, whatever you want to call it, that there's a human connection that happens. You know, uh, right before the meeting, as we were going into a meditate, that me brief meditation, uh, we I talked a little bit about deep 
listening. You know, it's been said that most people are never listened to. Really. And, and it's also been suggested that perhaps the greatest gift that we can offer another human being is to listen to them. So when, when people are ready to share and when they do share, everyone it receives a gift. Uh, even if it may be re-traumatizing, even if it may be triggering, there's an opportunity to experience compassion, to feel connection, uh, even when we don't necessarily agree on some things, there's still that empathy of suffering. And so um, we're not trying, we're not there to try to fix anybody. We're not trying to, we're not there to fix each other. We're here to listen. And um, the, we believe that people have their answers within. And so by by talking about what's going on, they get clarity. They get understanding and they get acceptance of themselves, which is part of the healing work. You know, and look, I'm not a clinician. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of training in psychology, but I do have a lot of life experience. And uh, when we talk about recovery, is it, what is it we're recovering? Mm. Well, we, we're, what have we lost? Well, what we've lost is a sense of self. And so this journey is a return to a, re, a restoration, a rediscovery, a recollecting of the fragmented pieces into an integral wholeness um, that is the self. Mm. And well, the, yeah, yeah. the thing I would add to that is that um, therapy for mental health conditions and uh, is you know we 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 don't want to disparage that 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 can save lives and it's really important work that therapists do mostly not always but mostly one on one and so that's a lot of therapists required to help mm -hmm. people right and we're, there's a shortage of therapists um, but so the therapeutic relationship really means that you as the person being helped, it's on you to fix yourself. They're assisting. They, they know some things that will make that easier for you, but you had to do it yourself. Um, and, and so that's, and when you get better, the person you've been relating to around all these things in your heart is someone you don't see again. You're not allowed to have a personal relationship with your therapist. So that's one kind of healing relationship. And it can be quite useful for people who have something that they're really struggling with that a therapist can support. With moral injury and with the way we do these peer groups that are confidential, when people share the same kind of horrible things that they might share with a therapist or, or something that's moral injury rather than what they're working on with a therapist, then there's a whole group there ready to receive it and take it in. And there's something about that process of having a group believe you, listen to you and take it in that lightens your personal burden. And then you also can, whoops, sorry, my cat just <laughs> zoomed That's <off>. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you can also um, give, you know, you can, there's a space in your, always in your heart to listen to somebody else. And so you can, um, maybe you're not ready to share, but you can open your heart to others. And just that capacity of empathy, just that time and space and silence to listen to others sometimes actually makes you more able to listen to yourself. Maybe you're not ready to share because you don't know what to share. Um, so the listening itself is part of the participating because it's that cycle of sharing, listening, 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 sharing, that that where everybody helps each other. And it's not up to you alone to fix yourself. In fact, you're involved in healing through the process of being with others and forming, if only temporarily for an hour, a deep emotional bond to a person. Um, and there's no reason if you leave a group and you connect to somebody that you can't talk to them if they were are willing to talk to you. We don't 
you know, we don't have these rules about you can never see anybody in your group again, or you can even come with other people from your workplace or your friends and be in a group together as a way to also deepen your own friendships and relationships in life. But it's really um, a different process than therapy. It's really a collective sharing process of helping each other get better to become our best selves again. I love that because it's it's a community engaged. Um, there, there's a selflessness about it and yet an appropriate selfishness because like I think I hear both of you saying, we're looking to take care of ourselves. The counselor, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the medication can't truly fix me. They're a part of, or tools through the mechanism or the process of getting through the trauma so that we can hopefully not have a moral injury again. But we have the 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 moral um, the moral dilemma that we're suffering, and when we can share this in community, that there's there's a such a piece to that, and and we do that like we have these things where we do that moment then that made me feel in small group, after we've kind of used laughter as a catalyst to open up the amygdala and the hippocampus to feel again, and that left prefrontal cortex, and and this was what it sounds like to me, what you all are able to do and hearing you say you know what you can bring that coworker, you can bring that friend you can bring somebody that you've had this shared horrible experience with where you may have competing emotions about that but yet can come together to share and better understand the position that that person's feeling and, and been suffering in um yeah it's such a relief i think to come and share and not be where somebody else is evaluating, judging, diagnosing, and fixing you. There's nobody in the room doing those things. And, and I think it's, it's a peer group and everybody's equal. And for, you know, in terms of their, their experiences, their experience, their feelings are their feelings. And all they're asked to do is share um, I, and listen. I love hearing that. And, and, you know, to have been involved or witnessed something or had something done to you where you have guilt, shame, anger, outrage, sorrow, um, to feel the need to have to be fixed. Like I'm not broken. I'm angry. And, and that's kind of the paradigm that I've had to move away from, from, you know, kind of Western medicine and this, well, here's a pill. Or if you go to counseling, every week for, uh, you know, for six months, you're going to be so much better. And I know personally that I, I was much worse before I got better, but I wasn't building the relationships and I wasn't able to have a shared experience. And at times the person I was speaking with was so caught off guard by, by what I was sharing because it was not a shared experience to them. It was me regurgitating. So they're in fact having a moral dilemma, which could lead to trauma. Right. And if we've already suffered that moral dilemma together in this group of people, the, the ease of which we're bringing it is, is I think the load can be lightened a little bit is what I'm understanding. Um, I'd like to add some, uh, a little bit to that, too. Uh, I think in a, in a previous webinar, I, I was kind of uh, talking ag against traditional therapy, pointing out the shortcomings of it. Uh, certainly it has a huge amount of value and, and, and is very, very helpful. Um, but there are built-in problems. Uh, first of all, one is that for most people, a therapist, a therapist is very expensive and a lot of people just simply can't afford it. So there are people that could benefit from therapy that won't seek it out because it's it's beyond their means or a luxury or self-indulgence or whatever. You know, and, and and there is, unfortunately, still a stigma of, uh, you know, of course, we're out here in California. It's kind of trendy. Everybody, everybody has their therapist. Right. You know, the, all the Hollywood stars. So it's kind of a trendy thing to do. But but when it gets right down to it, there's like, oh, it's, it's if I seek therapy, if I seek help right away, there's this association of something's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what we want to the message to be that there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Yes, there. you may have a problem. You have it may have it be experienced in the stress or distress of a moral dilemma, but you're 
a whole and complete human being with a conscience. And again, it you know, that's what makes you a, a good person. And also one of the things that happens, and Dr. Rita touched on this already, but in 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 um in in traditional therapy, there is a hierarchical kind of a situation where the therapist knows it and you don't. And and so there it's not an even playing field. You know, if when we sit with peers and we don't even require people to use their own names. So, you know, we know the benefits of anonymous groups. Uh there's power. Sometimes it's easier to tell a stranger what's going on, to tell things you've never told anybody. Uh, you know, you might tell your uh, the bartender, you might tell your hairdresser, you might tell whomever. Uh, uh, but this is a place where we're not imposing any of what's going on with us on a on someone that's just there to fix our hair. We're there for each other, and so there's a connection. And that sense of isolation and, and and that shame that comes with having to hide this secret, uh, that shame can be released. And so that that um, hiding is no longer the whatever the dilemma is, whatever the distress is, whatever the emotions are, whatever the action was, uh, doesn't have to be hidden any longer. And there's a release and a freeing uh, uh, effect that happens that's just very liberating and allows one to embrace themselves again. Their sense I, of self. I was talking with a friend last night and, and a lot of these um, points resonate with, with what um, this person, I'm, I'm just not going to use gender because uh, that person I don't want, the people that know me that know the conversation to to make that specific you know that anonymity portion i think which is valuable and thank you for sharing that 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 can happen um you know the self-sabotage and and the feeling of brokenness and that shame where uh when you're in a group like this that radical transparency that vulnerability being shared and given um like you said puts us on a, a quote unquote even playing field or a level playing field. So there, you know, the whole that whole example of that hierarchical structure, like I'm here because of them and they're going to give me something to do, an exercise, a, a pill, uh, just the conversation. And, you know, again, to value the the, the significance and and the and, and what they do, certainly, and to also honor and recognize that we can have overarching and overlapping modalities for which people can can find their true identities again to 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 have the good in you want to come out again as you said dr brock and and to me that's just neat um i know you can be found at www.voa.org which is veteran or volunteers of, of of america is there another website specifically for the shea center dr brock that People can look um, up. Well, it would be that that URL with just a slash and moral injury, and then slash and moral would, injury. Okay, moral injury, and then you would see all our pro. You know, you can look at our programs. You can find rest for first responders that way, um, or for first responders, you can just type in uh, rest R E S T with the number four four. So rest for firstresponders.com, and you can find all these groups. Um, there's a schedule of times, and uh, as we start to get demand, we'll keep adding new times. Um, but everyone in the rest for first responder programs have they have all worked in some capacity as a first responder. Either they're retired or they've had a job previously um, in some kind of first responder work. And we mean by first responders, of course, law enforcement, firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, ER staff dispatchers, and even U.S. aid workers. Um, so because they often are going in in a famine or in a mm -hmm. earthquake, like right now in Turkey. Oh, my Lord. That, that, or that, oh, my gosh, that earthquake is so devastating. Those those are first responders too. people who go into those places to bring aid and help people get out. So it, anyone who's faced that kind of you know, high stakes work where the consequences of snap decisions are very high because um, you can't sit and think about, well, what is the right thing to do? You have to have the sort of automatic way you do things a lot of the time. And sometimes those automatic ways 
are don't result in what they should result in. So, um, so, so that's who we think of as a first responder is someone in that situation. Very holistic group. And I know you also do um, programs for physicians. I saw there's one uh, coming up. Um, so very all encompassing. Uh, have you done mm-hmm. programs for caregivers, like uh, caregivers for Alzheimer's uh, patients and, and things like that? Because again, moral yeah. injury, moral distress. Well, the, the main program that Jim actually helped us set up and create uh, is just um, uh, voa.org slash rest. <laughs> and so uh, that program is for anyone. And we have a lot of caregivers mm. come to that. And we first set that up for our own VOA employees who were do- working in assisted living situations where they were they were taking care of people um, in senior centers or in um, mental illness centers or how our house we have a very large housing program and so we have that the the care that goes with that and a lot of our people were fried for the same reasons everybody else uh, in the country was fried is the short staffed long hours not enough um, protective equipment, all of that. And so we set up rest early on in the pandemic just to give people a place to, to deal with some of those things. So caregivers, we've had students who are struggling with their education. We've had nurses, we've had uh, we've had clergy and clergy spouses and chaplains. We've had all kinds of people come to that other rest program. And at that other rest program, you will also find the, the, the groups that are for veterans only. So, so at the regular rest program, we also have veterans groups set up. But the first responders, because we got a grant to do it, got their own website and their own private place. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask too, so funding. Now you just mentioned grants. So that was a, a beautiful segue the universe gave me. Um, how can individuals or corporate donors uh, or people that are uh, listening that work for an organization when we have matching donation Tuesdays and giving Wednesday, I mean, all these different things throughout the year, when a corporation says, hey, who, who, how can we donate? How can we help somebody that's helped you, uh, uh, a spiritual or religious organization that says, you know what, we want to give our $1,000 that we would have given to the community because um, VOA is giving so much to so many more we're multiplying uh, our resources by the resources that you're training and giving to the people to, to be the stewards of this, you know, soul uh, recovery, if you will. Um, you can just you can just go to voa.org backslash moral injury and there's a donate button. And there's a and donate button. Button. That's right. Awesome. Uh, or you can email me rbrock at voa.org. Rbrock at voa.org. Yep. And uh, mm-hmm. so, ladies and gentlemen that, that are listening, um, to be a catalyst for change, we have to we have to take action. You know, thoughts are great, feelings are amazing when they're amazing, and they're horrible when they're horrible. Um, this organization, these two beautiful people, the souls, I had the opportunity to, to spend time and share with them last week. Uh, shared tears, um, tears both of of relief. Because again, I'm not alone in my struggle uh, because that was resonated uh, between uh, each of us. Uh, The readings that I've looked at that you've shared, Dr. Brock, um, James as well. Um, Before I come to you, James, and and as we kind of wrap this up, I want each to have have your your time to to close up for our listeners and the followers that you've already had, uh, that we can get this message and this word out and, and the organizations, the groups that meet the best interest for the people that are going to be coming to seek out the help and the engagement, the sharing, the telling of stories. But something that was just, it's several sentences, so I apologize. Our suffering is testimony to the soul's non-negotiable requirements for meaning and connection. The anguish of moral injury reveals paradoxically what it hides the indestructibility of the conscious and our profound need for love. That is, I mean, if I didn't read anything else in what you do, that just hits bells and whistles from my brain, my hippocampus, my amygdala, my heart, my soul, because it is true. I don't want to be viewed as a this or that kind of person. 
you know, we're often judged by our actions as opposed to our intentions, which then becomes a character flaw in the perception of others to us. Um, in this case, we're doing it to ourselves because of what we've done. And uh, James, if you will, that profound need for love, the, the driving force for you to finally stop having to have that dopaminergic, that epinephrine dump uh, for that excitement addict that you were, what was the kind of final point? Or it was cumulative, obviously, but what was that kind of last thing that said, you know what, enough's enough for me to go there? If you feel comfortable sharing in the, in the last couple of minutes we have. Well, uh, it's been said that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I, I believe that there are messengers uh, that, and guides, and that's exactly what happened. It was through a set of uh, synchronistic circumstances that I happened to bump into this person that said, hey, there's this, and hey, there's that. And, and um, basically, they said to me, uh, I was suffering, and now I'm not, and you don't have to suffer. And that's what I would say to all of your listeners you don't have to live in pain. You don't have to suffer with what you've been carrying and hiding inside. You can um, uh, be heard, be understood. You can reconnect with yourself. You know, love, where does love begin? You, you know, does love begin from within or from without? Well, maybe it happens all at once. I don't know. You know, it's one of the life's great mysteries, right? Um, you know, sometimes I use the word uh, love instead of God, because that's the healing force. We have to love ourselves and we have to love each other. And and just listening, having compassion for uh, someone else's story can can be a pathway to reconnecting with ourselves and self-love, uh, which is essential. You know, we have to like ourselves or, or our life becomes unbearable. Wow. So we make we make peace with ourselves. Uh, love in, in place of God. That's I'm going to I'm going to start using that. I often said grace. And I, I think we we underuse the word love in, in our society. Um, I, I tell a lot of my coworkers now, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And, and to the point where initially they felt uncomfortable. And once they realized that my spirit, my soul is speaking to them differently because I know it's outside of who they see my behaviors and actions at it sometimes. I'm also willing to show them and share with them that I know that my actions and my behaviors at times are a reflection of my pain, my guilt, or my shame that has going through the restoration of the transformation process uh, through like redemption and resilience and, and whatever religiosity or spirituality that that takes for people. Um, I just hope in my soul for them is that they have some sort of hope. And if we can use the word love as the overarching tenant, that takes out all of those other things that we can disagree about and, and have arguments about doctrine and theology and scripture and, and, uh, and, and, you know, all those different things, they're all taken away. So love is just perfect. So, James, thank you for sharing that. Um, thank you. Thank Dr. You. Dr. Brock, um, the humility for which you wear uh, your spirit, the, the person, that, the strongest leader is the one that just knows how their people are going to react and respond under the tutelage and the guidance uh, in, in the experiential world knowledge that you've dealt with personally. Th this is the person that I felt um, you're, you're profoundly, uh, the, the strength for which I see you and watch you in your stillness is so profound. And yet when you speak, it is like, the clarifying voice that I have needed to personally hear when we spoke last week and I told you I was more confused after studying and researching 
and you were able to just say, I understand that, and here's what it is. The facilitators that you have, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, one of the ways I got into this process was that I became a feminist in college and an anti-war activist and a civil rights activist in college. And when I went into graduate school, um, my professors didn't know much at all about any of those things. And so it was my peer group that we all sort of taught each other these things as activists. And so as I moved into academe and worked in as a scholar in feminist ways, my, my own doctoral advisor said, I will learn things from you. I don't feel this stuff the way you do, and I don't know it as well as you do. So my friends and I consider ourselves self and sister educated. And in seminary, I took a class in group dynamics and counseling where we had to form a group and then lead it. So I formed a feminist consciousness raising group. And that's where I realized you don't need a therapist or a leader. These are transformative things when you have a group of people that have a shared experience that's painful and they want to talk about it. So then I became a professor where I had to know everything all the time. But <laughs> these last 10 years I'm working on moral injury, I have gone back to that that model of, of um, and my professor was the lead, he was the first person in theological education to teach about groups and how to do groups. So I felt like, wow, I got a valuable education when I was like 23 from one of these leading experts on group dynamics and counseling. And so, um, so I was already kind of leaning that way, but the more we've done this work in this peer facilitated group context, the more I'm really grateful I had that little bit of background um, that that so I could feel what was going on in the groups. I can, I'm not in the groups, but I can sense that there's transformative things happening because they happened for me in my 20s in a group that had no leader. And there were eight of us and things Women shared things they were scared to share and found out three other women in the group were having the same difficult experiences in their marriages and hadn't talked to anybody about it. Um, so the, the moral, you know, this is this is all about moral injury that that group was on. I didn't really realize it till now. Um, but uh, but for me, that's that's actually the magic of this program is um, people helping each other. Um, because the therapists in the world are deeply needed, but they're not enough of them. And we, for these things, we can do it for each other. I love that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have been with uh, Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock and James Wong. Um, when the good in you uh, is wanting out again, we ask that you look for the resources, the peer engagement, the resources that they can extend to you beyond the peer engagement at, um, and I'll just say the general uh, www.voa.org and then there's slash moral injury. There's also slash rest. There's slash uh, first or first responder. What was that, Dr. Brock? Yeah, it's a uh, rest. It, it's actually not tied to the VOA website. That's it's right. just rest for rest number four, rest for first responders.com. Rest for firstresponders.com. Thank you for that. And that four is a number, not a word. The number. So R-E-S-T, the number four dot com. R-E-S-T for firstresponders.com. And then first responders is in writing. Awesome. Yeah, it's all written out in one word. It's Wonderful. all, you know, it's a, those spaces. Just rest for firstresponders.com. And I think it's important. I wish there were a way to do four so it wasn't confused with the word. With the word. <laughs> so what, I, what we'll do is I will, uh, is I put this out there and just for the listeners, when I link these and when GEMS does them and when they get sponsored by other other uh, resources, we'll, we'll make sure that we link the, the, uh, uh, the different sites that people can go to, um, whether they be the general... Uh, whether they be veterans only, whether they be the, for the first responder. So we'll make sure that we are highlighting each one of those individually so people don't have to worry about how to find them when they're in, in that time of seeking. Because uh, we know that when it, it's easy, when, when something has, takes five clicks as opposed to one click, 
it's easy for me to just say I'm done. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. Um, so low on power. I understand that. Um, so this is and has been the EMS Improv podcast, uh, where we engage, where we have tried to be mindful, and we have shared and told our stories. Um, it's been a blessing, an honor, and and I truly hope, in love, that a piece which uh, surpasses each of your understanding and to those listeners out there be with each of you thank you thank you it's been a pleasure to be with you yes absolutely <laughs>